You're listening to Fight in Progress. With your hosts and stress coaches, founder of Under the Shield, Susan Simmons, and TomTheBomb.com. Fight in Progress grapples with the internal and external struggles in the daily lives of our men and women in law enforcement, the armed forces, and first responders. Tackling the tough topics and supporting those who support us. We hear you, and we're here for you. Welcome back to Under the Shield Presents Fight in Progress. Nice job. Yeah, <laughs> you can do that a hundred times. I, I'm going to really think you've got this down pat. Yeah, well, at 99, I'll screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and today we're without a producer. Tom is actually... Uh, Dual role. Dual role. That's kind of scary. I found a remote. This is dangerous. There you go. Uh, it doesn't work. Yeah, Don't it's worry not about it. I was trying to change the lights. See, another motor. Got, got to play with the toys Squirrel. on the table. <laughs> yeah, so unfortunately, Joel is sick today. It must have been a little too much of our golf outing in that the wind last been. night, I'm sure. And it was windy God, last night. That was night. crazy. Allergies. Allergies are killing me right now. I don't know what we were thinking sitting out there with 40 miles hour gust y'all trying know. to hit golf balls <laughs> yeah we did a little top golf last oh, night nice. yeah. yeah but at dobson ranch okay so yeah. i think top golf you get a little more protection yeah, from the wind know. these are just open bays and it's like whoa yeah it was crazy all kinds of stuff was blown around yeah a little team bonding that almost got us blown out of there but anyway so what's happening with you tom um, nothing new. Nothing new? No, same old, same old. Trying to schedule some classes with uh, oh, some yeah. of our PDs across the state. Yeah, well, MCSO, too. We got to yep. get that one. They've asked for dates for June and July, so okay. we got to get that scheduled for their peer support and then in-service after that and um, working with some stuff down in Yuma County and Yuma yeah. City. and I got, what, Bullhead City. Winslow. Um, Winslow, and then... Cochise County wanted some. Yep. That we'll do right. down in Bisbee area. Yep. And so. um, a week from tomorrow is the last of these evil <laughs> things where they pump poison in my body and go, suck it up, Susan, it's medicine. And I go, y'all are full of crap. <laughs> yeah, boy, it's been a fun 18 weeks. Let me tell you, I'm happy to have this one almost behind yeah. me. Yeah, and then it should be smooth sailing yeah, after with, that. With, with just interruptions of schedule for the whole month yeah. of May for radiation. But, you know, get me in at 5 in the morning, I'm good. Me in and out by 5.30, done, move. Next stop. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so almost almost behind us, and then we can get running around the state and get this stuff done and a whole bunch of other stuff that we've got in the works, yes. too, at Under the Shield. So anybody listening around the country now, if you're interested in training, all you got to do is reach out to us. We'll give you all those numbers at the end, but um, we got some pretty good training that actually Haida here says is the most requested right. that they get, especially for that supervisor. We do a supervisor training that's... Mm -hmm. Desperately, desperately. <laughs> we just can't seem to get the chiefs and assistant chiefs to sit in. I hadn't figured that out yet. <laughs> need a bigger rope. <laughs> no, need a shot collar. <laughs> we, we don't want to face our evils. Come on. Now. Oh, no. It wasn't on your end. It's not on your end. It's on the other end. It's not on the county side. <laughs> That's for sure. But anyway, tell us about our guest today. Um, you know, I was thinking about this. So uh -oh. our, our guest today is... Uh, I'm not sure this is a good combination. Chief Chief Deputy Matt Thomas from Pinal County Sheriff's yep. Office. That's me. And the best in the state, if not in 
actually yeah, they, most of the they, country. They are doing well, it right you. over there. Wait, were you best chief deputy in the Absolutely. state? Is that right? <laughs> I was going for that title. Absolutely. And you tell Mark I said that. <laughs> of course, it's, his, uh, it's to his credit. That's right. He, That's he, right. See, the man's got vision. He does have vision. <laughs> he does. Absolutely. And he's our favorite sheriff. And, uh, yeah, uh, again, if people want to know about leadership, call there Mark Lamb. Mm-hmm. And I'm yep. sure Matt can fill you in on some of that, too. <laughs> well, I was trying to figure out how long we've known each other. And I'm thinking it had to be about 15 years. Yeah, it was. Uh, so I, I went into Motors 2009. So it had been shortly after that because uh, you helped train me and right. Dan helped train me. Yeah. Yeah. So is it the TBR, the mad cow disease, that prevents you from knowing exactly how long you've known him? It's a combination. Uh, yeah, it's definitely a combination. <laughs> <laughs> that and wearing that helmet for so long. Huh? <laughs> yeah, y'all all just, I hear is. <laughs> <laughs> y'all just do that to look good. It's all about the boots. We know that. Oh, yeah. Y'all ain't oh, yeah, fooling yeah. anybody. Uh, yeah. no, it, I, I didn't even understand the thing about the boots until I started wearing them. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, we're better than firefighters. <laughs> Chicks really did this. That's right. They really do. <laughs> yeah. I, I my wife made me keep them. <laughs> <laughs> and pull them out periodically. <laughs> the role playing. That's a different, yeah, yeah, that's a whole that's different podcast. <laughs> yeah, when my kids were in high school, I had a motor from Montgomery when we were still there. And, and they came walking in, and he'd... We were in a serious session or something, and I don't even know why the door was open. Probably wasn't anybody else in the building. And in walk four teenagers, and literally the minute they see him, it was like they practice in unison. <laughs> they all start laughing and screaming, "Killer boots, man!" <laughs> I'm like, yeah, get out. <laughs> he did laugh. He did find it amusing. Number one rule, man, that I learned is uh, like when we wreck. Firefighters better not yes. touch our boots. Don't <laughs> cut those off. But do they know that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they have guns pulled on them. <laughs> yep. That I sure. did not realize, <laughs> but I should have. But anyway. So I, you did two stints in motors, right? No, just the one. Just the I, so one. I, uh, in 2009, we stood up our first motor unit. So myself and a few others went through the motor school. Me and one other Pinal County guy made it through the motor school. And uh, that was the start of our unit. And so we stood up the unit. I was the sergeant there, and then I promoted out. And so uh, I, I did two stints in traffic, but not in Oh, not that's in right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So yeah. tell us funny stories. What did he do? Did he run into brick walls? No. Or yeah. did he... I was a clutch killer. <laughs> <laughs> I was, too, in my first car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially, you know, that first, like that first week in motor school, man, yeah. we go through some clutches on those motorcycles. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I had to I, I was a high rever. And, uh, <laughs> high a, yeah. Like a jet engine going yeah, off exactly. and he's moving like two miles yep. an hour. Yep. <laughs> oh, it didn't cause the front end to blow up. No, no, no. It's that slow stuff that kills you. Going straight, going fast is super easy. Right. It's the uh, slow work that gets you, man. Head and eyes. Get hand cramps from the yeah, clutch. Yeah. And, yeah, it's yeah y'all don't want me on a motorcycle. <laughs> I didn't want me on a motorcycle. <laughs> that would not have been a pretty scene, so that's for sure. Sure. Oh, man. So no funny stories. Now, that's a shame. No. Because you usually have some pretty good ones about people in motor school. Yeah. we. I mean, we've had our our share of fun stories from yeah. motor school. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> So yeah, do you I miss them? Do you ride a motorcycle off duty? Not anymore, no. Uh, I did when I was a motor, and uh, 
once I became a motor, I stopped riding my personal bike. <laughs> and uh, then after I got off motors, I just, I, I lost, I really lost the enjoyment, I think, of uh, the off-duty stuff. So I got rid sure. of the bike. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah, because it, it, yeah, work just ruined it. Yeah. Well, I hadn't been here very long. I moved out here June of 2012. But I'll never forget the first time, because I never saw this back in Alabama, but the first time I walked into a gas station, 7-Eleven or something, and there's a motor cop in the beer cooler. Oh, yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> and Circle I'm like, K's oh, were, yeah. yeah. Circle I, K's and QT's yeah. would let us go in there. I was like, I'm not sure that's a good look. Oh, it's great. <laughs> I understand the purpose. We, we really didn't care what it no, looked like. No. And I would I'd gladly help. I'd hand people their sodas, whatever. Oh, no, it was more about the beer that they were uh, hanging around that I was a little disturbed by. Oh, that was so nice, though, because yeah. in the summertime, they would. They'd let us go in there. You'd take it. Like, I had an outer carrier. Right. I'd take my outer carrier off, and uh, it was awesome. Yeah, yeah, that had to be brutal. But, yeah. golly, yeah, I just thought. Yeah, there's some chiefs in Alabama that probably would object to you sitting on the cases of beer in the cooler. I get the cooler part, but let's go find something with milk and water and something else. But anyway. Oh, yeah, those were good times. Yep. So tell us about your book. You, what, what possessed this first and how long of a project was this? Oh, the book was, uh, it was a, about a three-year project from the time I put pen to paper till I actually published. I published in uh, November of last year. I self-published. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I learned quite a bit because I, the sheriff wrote a book, right? And that's mm-hmm. kind of what prompted me because the sheriff and I spent a lot of time together, spend a lot of time together. And uh, in our first year together, <clears throat> we didn't really know each other when he offered me the position. Um, we had had a couple interactions and so our first year is really like a marriage almost where sure. we're getting to know each other, get, you know, filling each other out and, and kind of just getting to know each other. And so uh, it was during that first year that I was telling him a lot of the war stories of stuff <laughs> we had done to that point. And, uh, and he knew about like the cartel stuff that was going on, but he didn't realize all the stuff we had done mm-hmm. uh, as an agency behind the scenes. Because what, what was his main <clears throat> thing coming up at Pinnell? Where was he, he was, ju- he was a, and I don't want to say just, but right. he was, yeah, he was a patrol deputy and, uh, he worked up in the, um, like AJ Gold Canyon down into the Florence Coolidge area. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of worked those areas. And uh, he tested for SWAT. I was the SWAT commander at the time that he tested. And uh, he he failed one piece of the test because it's multiple portions in a test. And if you fail any one portion, you're you're out. He failed a portion on uh, on some shooting stuff. And uh, I pulled him aside, kind of told him, hey, you know, good luck uh, next time. And uh, he knew where he had messed up. And he's like, I'm coming back. Cool. And uh, <laughs> that was the most we had talked until um, – he offered the position, and then uh, again we got into the. And you were like, "Thank God, he's not holding that over my head." <laughs> now I got to call yeah. him sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> no, he does not hold grudges. He's good like that. Um, but anyways, we got into the the talking about it, and then when he wrote his book, you know, obviously I was right there alongside with him as his number two, and so I I learned a lot of what he was doing and how he did it. He used a publisher. Uh, but he still researches everything because he wants to know what he's getting into. Sure. So he educated me to how it goes. And so um, he kept urging me, like, you got to write a book on this stuff. Like, it's it's timely. It's a subject matter that everybody's interested in. Right. Um, and then we even talked about just uh, leaving kind of a legacy of the work that the people had done that nobody – because I, I worked with some great people during those operations. And – 
the work we were doing, people just don't believe that you're out there doing that stuff. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I wanted to memorialize all of that because during that time frame in U.S. history, we played a big part in U.S. history. And yeah. so I wanted to memorialize that in the work we had done. So that's what got me into it. I started writing. And it's it's easy when you start writing truth. I mean, I think fiction... Well, don't say that. I've been working on a book for 30 years. <laughs> Dave Grossman is listening to this. I am going to get a phone call. Susan, Susan, I've been telling you for 30 years. It's easy to write a book. It no, is. Really, it is. No, well, I think me. fiction is tough because you're making up stories. Now and I'm writing about my life and yeah. married to DEA and yeah. all of the See, stuff. See, that's that easy because you know the story. I so do, you just but it all it gets garbled together. <laughs> that's the great thing about writing a book, though, that I found is, A, it's cathartic, right? Because you're oh, kind of yeah. going through the stories right. and, and you're getting to you know, put that on paper mm -hmm. and you have to be somewhat creative. Not that you Hollywood it up or anything because it's, you're, you're putting truth down, but you have to be more descriptive. And and so uh, what I tell like cops that are going to write, or if they're interested in writing, you just have to write the best report you've ever written. And you, you gotta, you know, cause we always exactly. tell cops paint a picture for the jury. Right. Yep. And yep. so that's kind of with the book, that's kind of what I did is I would dive into a story and then I would be as descriptive as possible. And sometimes even, you know, it sounded corny as I was writing it, but I was like, but it makes sense. Like, that's what I was thinking when I saw this, <laughs> sure. right? And so I had to relay that to people so that they get that feeling. Um, so I went through the writing process. And then uh, once I I finished the initial piece, which was the, the actual operations that we did. And then when I did that, I was like, man, like it needs more of a beginning and it needs more foundation and i have to, i felt like i had to qualify as a white guy why i was <laughs> why i was explaining stuff about a mexican culture sure and so that's when i decided okay here's how i'm going to start the book and so i started the book with a little bit of my background a little bit of how i came up in in both regular life as a kid and then as a law enforcement officer and how i got into this work um, and then i go into the mexican culture itself, uh, especially the narco culture mm -hmm. and talking about some of their belief systems. Then I go into their structure, how we saw it, how they were structured and how they operated and describe all of that. Because I figured, okay, if, if I give them a good understanding of who I am, who we were fighting and how that all looked, and then go into the operations, they're going to, by the time we get to the operations, they're going to be like, oh, well, that makes sense. And sure. this is why that, and this is why this. Um, so that's kind of how I laid it all out. I get it all done and I'm like, woo, I'm done. All right. Got a book. And, uh, that's when I figured out that's where the real work yes. starts. <laughs> so, uh, then I had to figure out and learn about, uh, editing and formatting and book covers and formatting those and, uh, <laughs> how to publish, when to publish, where to publish, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, God blessed me in a lot of ways through this whole process because I had people, uh, I have a, a good network throughout the industry and uh, even outside of law enforcement. And I reached out to my network and just said, here's what I'm trying to accomplish. And everybody had somebody, okay, uh, go to this person. And I would go to that person and tell them what I'm trying to do. And people just went out of their way to help me. Uh, there's, there's a lady named Lori who helped me with the editing and the formatting and her team, they were awesome. And they, when I gave them the story, they were like, Oh, we're all in on this. Like, <laughs> this is a great story. And so they just, they helped me do stuff that normally would have cost me a lot of money to get there. Sure. And, uh, they, 
they gave me the homie hookup and, and really helped me <laughs> through the process and helped me learn about what I was doing too. Uh, so then I, I get to the point where, uh, I had a buddy named Joe who I didn't, I knew he did magazine stuff, but I didn't know he did book covers. He nice. stepped up and helped me with the book cover. And, and so Joe did the book cover, um, Lori and her team did the editing, the formatting, and then Lori introduced me to another lady out of Florida that does book launches and stuff nice. like that. Um, and she, Lori reached out to her and she looked into my stuff and she's like, yeah, I'm all in and nice. I'm going to, you know, help you out as well. So she helped me out with the launch. Um, cause you have to figure out, like I said, there's dates you want or sure. days you want to launch, um, certain times to launch. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's all this stuff. And, and luckily I had a good network again and a lot of the social media quote unquote influencers. Um, and they all said, Hey, we'll help you. And then I had a friend, Katie, who is in the media industry and Katie Pavlich, she's a, a Fox news correspondent. She has a townhall.com. She's the editor of that. And, uh, Katie had come out when she was writing her first book and her and I spent some time together. And so I asked Katie to do my forward and she did that piece for me. And, uh, she also connected me to a, a bunch of people. So when I launched, I had a good network that helped me sure. just put the word out right. there. Um, had a good launch and then boom, there it was, it was, it was a thing. And now I have a published book, which is <laughs> kind of weird, but I thought the same thing knowing <laughs> this guy that used to be a motor that I know he, can write. he wrote, Look he wrote a book. I got to read this. <laughs> well, see, I'm halfway there. I got the editor there and I, go. and, and Lieutenant Colonel Grossman's already going to write the forward. So yeah. oh, the hard work's perfect. done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you got Lieutenant Colonel Grossman as your forward, yeah, you're good to go. Oh, there yeah, you go. Yeah. 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 He's also my nag. I'm getting this done. So. <laughs> so for any of our listeners who don't know the name of the book, and I'm going to read it because otherwise I'll screw it up. Okay. Um, but it's uh, called Interceptors, The Untold Fight Against the Mexican Cartels. Nice. Yeah. And what years was this time frame of? This time frame would have been about 20, 2009 to about 2014 okay. is when the operations took place. And so, like, if you talk to any of the people that were working that stuff at that time, it was referred to as the Wild West days mm -hmm. because our Southwest Desert was just it was just unreal the stuff that like it's, it, you'll see in the book if you if you take a look at it um the operations we were doing were essentially military operations but it was local law enforcement doing it and we would do it in conjunction with our federal partners um so it's a task force yeah we had several task forces stood up and and uh, one of the big ones that we actually started we being pinnell county um homeland security investigations and border patrol we had done a um, a Title III case, which is a, you know, like a wiretap case. And it was a year and a half long investigation, took down some top level cartel dudes on the U.S. side and got some indictments on the Mexico side. Huge operation, 99 indictments, I think, when nice. we were all, all said and done. And uh, within two weeks of making all the arrests and taking down the wire and stuff, they were back up and running. And so... <laughs> How we, disheartening like is that? <laughs> and, and so everybody was like, what the hell? Um, and that's where the idea came up is like, we just got to do smash and grabs on these guys. And these long-term investigations are great, but we got to leave those to like the feds and yep. just let them run those long-term investigations. Yeah. Locally, we partnered. So like I said, HSI, us and Border Patrol partnered on a task force. The theory being us and Border Patrol were the grab guys. Uh -huh. So we were working the desert. We knew how to do it. 
HSI had the investigative piece and all the follow-ups and all the Title Threes and all that stuff. So HSI acted as kind of our uh, real-time crime guys. Mm -hmm. And so they were the intel center and they were the investigators that would follow up on stuff. So they would, let's say they talked to a CI, they would get some information. They would immediately, as part of the task force, that information flow was immediate. So they would get intel, mm -hmm. they would immediately put it into the the system that we were using that information would get pushed to us and it would be actionable intel and us and border patrol would go act on it and we would smash and take guys down and take loads down and then we would prosecute those guys get any intel we could off phones and all that and that would all go immediately back to hsi they would start moving on the information and the intel gathering uh, and it was a constant cycle and so what we found is doing that had a much better effect because <laughs> we were just hitting them constantly and we were taking their guys off sure. as fast as they could replace them. So it, it really worked out well. And were they being charged federally? Uh, federally and locally. Okay. So it just depended on on how we wanted to. And it was all open discussions. That was the other great thing is the, the leadership. I was a lieutenant and essentially my counterpart at my level at HSI and my counterpart at my level in Border Patrol, it would be a daily discussion. We would have daily briefs, daily discussion and decide where are we going to go with this? Okay, you guys are going to take that case. Okay, we'll take this case. Like when it came to scout prosecutions, um, scouts were not getting prosecuted federally and scouts are the guys that are up on mountaintops with radios and sure. phones and they're coordinating movement out in the middle of the desert. Those guys were not getting prosecuted. And so we had our local or our uh, county prosecutor said they would take the case um, if we met some parameters. Uh, we had were they to, not being prosecuted because they were becoming CIs or they just no. just no the feds didn't, just, just the AUSA would not prosecute them they wouldn't take the case <laughs> we they were we would catch them with handheld radios like Motorola radios or Kenwood radios that were operating on VHF frequencies they were Latin based radios so you can tell by the serial numbers that these radios were coming from Latin America countries <laughs> um, they were Nothing on suspicious no, uh, they were on hijacked frequencies. So they were using U.S.-based frequencies that they were not authorized to use. And they were using Latin-based radios on hijack frequencies to coordinate the movement of dope for the Sinaloa cartel. And so <laughs> all of that mm. equaled wow. to the AUSA no problem at the time. Right. right? And you got to remember, if we're talking 2009, you're in, the, uh, you're in an administration that did not care. Yeah. Right. Pretty oh, much. You're right. Yeah. yeah. So um, – the local prosecutor said, we'll take it on, but we need an expert witness and we need to do historicals. So we started working on historicals. We designated one of our detectives to become the expert witness in this case. And he was a case agent for the scout prosecutions. And what we decided is uh, BORTAC is a tactical team for Border Patrol. Mm -hmm. One of the, I wouldn't say one of the best. They are yes. the best man trackers I've ever seen in my yep. life. Um, and they are they have a very particular skill set, and they are very good at yep. it. And one of those skill sets is dropping out of helicopters onto yep. the top of a mountain and interdicting scouts. And so we decided on our scout interdiction, BORTAC is going to be the interdiction group, so they're going to apprehend the scout. Uh, HSI and us are going to do the investigative piece. HSI is going to investigate for the federal crimes. We're going to investigate for the local crimes. And uh, Border Patrol had a evidence collection team 
they were going to be the collectors. So Vortec would take down. What a cartel operation y'all had. <laughs> yeah, exactly. it, it's, it was very complicated. Uh, Vortec would, would initiate the assault on the top of the mountain. They would catch the scouts. The scouts would have uh, caves and stuff like that mm-hmm. where they had all their stuff. Um, and so as soon as Bortac called it safe, Border Patrol's evidence team would move up. They would take phones, guns, whatever was up there with the scouts. They would take all that. They would then link up with our investigator. Um, we would book them into our jail on state charges, conspiracy charges, essentially. Uh, book them in, and then our investigator would log all the evidence in and make the case for uh, what they were doing. Our first interdiction, we got three scouts. Um we had two unarmed and one armed with an, an AR on top of the hill. The two unarmed guys said they were just out hiking. Of course and they were. Just mm-hmm. got off course. Not my bike. dope. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. Nah. And they, you know, they they basically said we're hiking and, and we got lost. So they were about 70 miles north of their country <laughs> lost. A little lost. Third guy with a gun was a genius. And he said, yep, I work for the cartel. I'm a scout. <laughs> and he had a gun. So <laughs> he... Uh, ding, 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 yeah, ding. He, yeah. he won the prize. Yeah, he did win the prize. So the, the two guys that were unarmed, they pled to two and a half years. And uh, the, the third guy with the gun, I think he ended up with 15. And so we successfully prosecuted it. And they, they all pled out, essentially. And so we had our first successful prosecution of a scout, and we went forward from there. And with, I think it was about six months. Within six months, the AUSA was being so embarrassed that they started, <laughs> they started yeah. taking the cases. So we actually kicked off scout prosecutions for the whole country because wow. once the AUSA picked it up, then Border Patrol started prosecuting yeah. them across the uh, southwest border. So, And all that that you got from them then built the case for the Title 13 for wiretaps for bigger fish yeah yeah so uh when we would get evidence it would all add to the historical because you're you're working on a bigger conspiracy case sure and so it would all go go towards that bigger conspiracy case and the rico cases and the mm-hmm. osadep cases and and uh all the intel everything was being fed up to the the feds um and then D, dea and hsi there's too many damn acronyms. it is <laughs> dea and hsi ultimately would do those bigger cases, and mm-hmm. uh, they would take off essentially the the head of the snake while we were dealing with all the underlings, uh, basically captain level and below is what we were dealing with in our stuff. Osadef and Rico, he's speaking my language. <laughs> I've told my ex many a time, I don't miss you, but I miss your job. I, I used to enjoy all that when he'd go up on wiretaps and stuff because I, you know, I'm always one shoving food that direction. And yeah, uh, those that and that. Well, for his stuff, especially in the early 80s, that was in oh, the yeah. days you had to have rooms and right. you'd walk in and lines are drawn all over and you're like, what the hell is all of that? Yep. yep. And his work actually, uh, you know, the work he was doing back then, because it was all Columbia-based yep. stuff, uh, led to the work that we were doing because by them being so successful in Columbia set the Mexicans up to take over. Sure. You know, and that's who we were dealing with. Yeah, we came into New Orleans at the time of Kiki Camarena. Oh, yeah. Yep. So that was that was uh, one of our first... Yep. And that's when the Mexicans were just starting to make their move to go into power. Yep. Yeah, it was crazy. And then I remember Operation Snowcap came in there after that. Yeah. Yeah. The book needs to be written. I'm just not sure how much DEA wants me to write. (laughs) Well, that's the other beautiful thing. As a a local, I didn't have to uh, clear this, right? I'm not, I I didn't, I wasn't under in. We do sign some when you go on wires and stuff. But uh, outside of that, the, the stories that I tell, 
I wasn't under any NDAs or any of that stuff to uh, not discuss it. And, and of course, in the book, I don't go into detail on stuff that's still applicable for tactics. Right. And right. That. Um, but I do, you know, just talk freely about the stuff we were doing because I think it's important. So well, how different, though, today? I mean, you know, oh, we hear all man. about the border and the mess going on, and we know y'all are front line, even though it really you don't go all the way to the border, but right. close enough. Right. But really, what's the difference? Uh, the big difference is how the cartels operate. So um, they're the same but different. So the the scouts and the stuff that we were dealing with aren't as prevalent as they were back then. Because back then, when we were dealing with uh, what we what I just described, you at at any given time, there the the rough guesstimate was a hundred scouts between our county and the Mexican border, which is wow. about sixty miles. That's crazy. And so you you just think if you drove those valleys uh, going down to Mexico from our county, um, almost every hilltop has a scout on it, you know, and, and they're watching your watching and reporting what you're doing. Um, nowadays, that the scout thing isn't as prevalent because what they're doing is uh, they're kind of self-guided. And so these groups that are coming up and the commodity commodity has shifted. So back then, bulk marijuana was the big thing. Okay. And then you had heroin, cocaine and meth. Um, and those are you're able to move those amounts uh, or better amounts in smaller packages of, of those drugs like the heroin, meth and, and cocaine. Um, because it takes less of that to make more profit. Sure. And so <clears throat> as we move forward, uh, what has happened is America legalized weed, which made a big shift on the Mexican side because the Mexicans saw that coming and decided we need to shift commodities yep. because it's going to devalue our, our product. And they moved to synthetics. And the good thing on, on for the Mexicans uh, that are pushing this is synthetics doesn't have growth season, so they can be a 24-7, 365 mm -hmm. operation, just making it, making it, making it, and they have the Chinese connections for the chemicals. Um, so they shifted commodities into the hard drugs, um, and meth and fentanyl have become the thing. Mm -hmm. So those are the two big things right now is meth and fentanyl, and now we're getting these mixtures coming up of uh, fentanyl, carfentanyl, and xylazine, I think it is. I may have the, the name wrong, but they're, they're mixing all that stuff to make a concoction for this new type of drug that is essentially an opioid that is, uh, uh that Narcan can't help. So you're oh, really? going to have overdoses that Narcan won't bring back. Um, wow. and so they're, they're just constantly evolving with their synthetics. But, uh, in addition to that, uh, drugs has kind of become secondary to yeah. bodies. Yeah, and human. so humans have become the main commodity for the cartels. And again, they're, so they're self-guiding. So what will happen is you'll have a, a group of human beings from whatever countries, and let's say there's like eight to ten of them. They'll have a guide with them, commonly referred to as a coyote, coyote. Um, that person will guide them up. They know the route, and they, they won't need scouts or anything, especially now because Border Patrol is really not – Yep. out there doing anything um not by their, not by doing, their own fault right? yep. the agents would love to be doing they're their very job frustrated. Right? yeah yep but these uh these bodies move freely up and they're guided uh most specifically by a coyote because they still owe money sure and a lot of them haven't made their full payment yet they've, they've paid partially or they uh, are going to make payment once they reach their destination which is indentured slavery really so <clears throat> how the cartels operate with the bodies 
and what we're seeing now compared to back then, back then we're chasing dope, hardly anybody's. Yep. And the cartels actually had put orders out that if people use those routes for, for bodies coming up, they'll be killed because they didn't want border patrol coming out there chasing bodies and messing up their dope right. routes. Yep. So not a lot of bodies back then, a lot more bodies now. And uh, it makes sense if you think about it, because what's happening is they are requiring some prepayment. And so if the cartel has eight to ten people, it's it's about six to fifteen thousand a person, depending on mm -hmm. who the person is, where they're from, all that stuff. So even at the low end, six thousand a person, uh, the cartels requiring prepayment. Uh, they're they're marking them somehow, or they are giving some indication on that person, like that person has paid. Uh, like in, in the Texas sector, they're wearing like wristbands, almost like you can ride the ride. Mm -hmm. Wristbands are using those to identify. Well, they got a system now. Oh, they, they got a big system. And so they pay, they get crossed over, they get brought up. And when they land, they uh, sometimes they have to pay more or sometimes they're free to go because they paid their payment. Or sometimes they're told you're going to do X, Y, and Z to make your payment, which could be hauling drugs, could be the sex trade, yeah. yeah, any of that stuff. And so that's the big difference now. And uh, for us, the tough part is we really don't have authority on bodies and Border Patrol is not being allowed to do their job. Um, we don't have the authority on the illegal immigration piece because we're state entity. And when we tried to do it as a state, they immediately shot that down. They being the feds right. and, and basically told us we were racist and you can't do that. Of course. Um, which is really odd if you think about it in the law enforcement world, because any of the cops out there that don't know this, uh, drugs and bank robbery were not state crimes. Right. <laughs> those those hmm. were federal crimes, but we have a state law on the books to be able to mm -hmm. prosecute those crimes because the feds figured out rather quickly, like, we can't do all this. The locals are going to be the ones handling it. Mm -hmm. oh, so yeah. the state passed a law so that we could deal with bank robberies and drugs. Um, but when we try to do it for immigration, it became this big thing, um, which kind of ties our hands. So back to the bodies, we can't really do anything with them. We're trying to move. There is a smuggling law on the books. Uh, but that only allows us to deal with the person who is smuggling the bodies, not the people themselves. Right. Um, so that's become the big difference in picture and in, in how we're dealing with yeah, stuff. Yeah, people don't realize we had Robert Almonte mm -hmm. on. Yep. Robert's been a friend and a, we've talked together numerous times. And, you know, he, he made some really good points. I think this was before you were right. co-hosting with us, Tom. but. You know, all this talk of just legalize everything. Right. And, you know, Robert's like, that won't put them out of business. They'll nope. just change their business. He goes, <laughs> you know, they're into smuggling avocados. Who the hell knew there was a demand to smuggle avocados? Oh, yeah. well, yeah. You know, but they make money off of it. And he said, and all it's going to do is drive the, the, the sex part of it, right. the children part of this, the human side of this. People don't realize they're not just going to go, well, drugs are legalized, so I guess we got to go work at the yeah. grocery store yeah. down the street. And one of the big differences that people probably don't understand, I mean, lay people probably don't understand, is they used to be drug trafficking organizations. That right. was their designation. They're no longer designated as that. They are transnational criminal organizations yes. because they transcend all crimes. They are stealing oil. They're stealing gold. They're stealing avocados. And, and then what they're doing is they are increasing the black market for those because mm -hmm. they're controlling the supply. Mm -hmm. So the demand becomes higher, the price shoots up, they control the supply, and then they incrementally release it or they make, you know, their 
shit ton of money off of it. Oh yeah. Right. So yeah, they're they're all they're counterfeiting sex trade. They're into everything, and they are worldwide. The the Mexican cartel is a big big problem. Very diversified kind of group. Yeah, you know, that's you know, for sure. and they don't have any rules to follow. So no, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> I know when I was reading your book, I could you know, when you're describing some of the um, stories about actually out in the field, right? You know, and you're guys got guys coming head on, you know, in the yeah. vehicles at you and stuff. I, I mean, it was I could just see you out there doing that stuff, and yeah, it, I, was, it, it was had to been just. You know, excited as hell, yeah. A yeah, it was, I'm not gonna lie; it was some of the funnest shit I've ever oh, done yeah. in my career. Yeah, and, and uh, it, it, you don't realize it when you're doing it. Uh, again, if you talk historically, you don't realize like we're doing some historical stuff here. Right. That's gonna you yeah. know, be part of American history, but it was it was crazy. And then the night vision stuff because night vision <laughs> was not as advanced as it is now, <laughs> right? right? And uh, another thing, it was thing, pretty badass at the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, right. it was it was cool for for what it was. Yeah, yeah, because when I when I started back in the the late '90s, we had the big starlight night vision, uh-huh. which was this huge tube, and like three people had to hold the damn thing just to look through <laughs> it, or you had to mount it on a tripod. Um, and now, you know, in the the book era, we were we were operating on night vision that you could wear on your head, just yeah. flip down and uh, and see. And there were still problems with that generation of night vision that we sure. had to work around. Um, but yeah, it it, the, it was just crazy being out in the middle of the desert. And some of the crazy stuff that happened, I like there's one distinct time I remember, like, what fucking planet am I on? <laughs> and, because we're in the middle of the desert. We're probably 40 miles from any town or anything, sitting on a mountaintop. We're going after some guys because we know they're coming through. And just... Like three in the morning, and you AK fire if you've never heard yeah. it is oh, very yeah. distinct. And so there's AK fire at three o'clock in the morning in the middle of nowhere. So you know what's happening. Like there's there's something going on between some groups or. But where and, the hell is it? Right, yeah. and you can kind of hear it, but you kind of can't because if you've been to the Arizona desert yeah. and you get in those valleys, you could hear a sound, and it's like two valleys over, yeah. but it sounds like it's right next to you, and and so. Just some weird dynamics out there, some weird stuff. And and again, uh, to to how I got into this book is when I'm telling the sheriff some of the stuff like you're describing, he's like, what? <laughs> no you did what? Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to ask about the family on this, though, because having been on that side of it. But how did your wife and and I don't know how old your kids were, if you had kids at that point, yeah. but how, how did all that come into play? Uh, Were you able to talk to her about it? Did no, you not? No, talk she didn't about it? know most of this stuff until the book was written. <laughs> oh, oh, that yeah. could have been an interesting household for a little while. Yeah, she, this is what you were doing the whole time. <laughs> she knew we were out doing some some high speed stuff, and and she knew it was you know dangerous. And uh, but I didn't get into any details. And kind of you know you know how cops are. We just we kind of shield our family from all that. And and I didn't want her. She was worried enough. I didn't want her to know exactly what was going on because then she would be worried all the damn time. And and she knew like when I would, I was on our SWAT team for 18 years and a lot of the SWAT stuff carried over into the interdiction stuff of the cartels. And uh, she knew when, when I got activated for a SWAT call, um, you know, she knew I'd call her as soon as I could. I couldn't really tell her what was going on. Um, and I wouldn't be on comms for a while because of what was going on. And it was the same. I worked undercover. Uh, it was the same for undercover, and it was mm-hmm. kind of the same for the cartel stuff. Where she just knew I was going to work, 
she knew what time ish I was due to be home. And that if I was going to be late, typically speaking, I would uh, communicate with her to let her know like, Hey, I'm cool, but uh, we're, we're tied up or whatever. Um, but I didn't get into a lot of this. And, and the other piece is my wife's Mexican and, uh, her family came here from Chihuahua and, uh, they, her family has dealt with the cartel. Sure. Uh, she has family they're probably part of, and, uh, she has family who have been extorted by, um, mm. killed by. Mm. And so she had cartel, um, issues on the family side. Sure. Um, and so I didn't want to get into all that either because, you, you know, you just never know who's connected to who or, or any of that stuff. So you stay out of all that. And uh, I didn't Were really... families threatened, though? Were you, did, they, did the cartels realize the impact you were having, so therefore they tried to come after? Yeah, so on some of the, the bigger cases, um, like there was one case that we did, and when we took it down, they kind of called everybody and they said, hey, so just... Uh, Watch your routes, change your routes, um, watch your houses uh, because they are very pissed off right now and they're trying to figure out who did what. Yeah. Um, and so you had those those veil warnings. But um, we were still, even back then, I would say that there were still some pretty good rules in place. Uh, and it's funny because you <laughs> talk about cartels and, and rules. <laughs> yeah. uh, but they still had some rules in place. And um, I think it's still the same today. They generally speaking, they stay away from U.S. law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And uh, they know that that brings the heat. So mm -hmm. if they're going to mess with us on our side of the line, that that's going to come with a price. And so I think they stayed away from that for the most part. And to be honest, when you talk to some high-level guys, they factor us in to their cost of doing business. So sure. right. they, would, they would have acceptable losses and Every once they wouldn't in a while, tell their would, guys that oh, it's no, acceptable. No, but. Yeah, no, no, yeah, but but they would have acceptable losses just like a business. Yeah, sure. And uh, we, every once in a while, we would get close to that threshold, but I don't think we ever crushed it enough to to get on their radar to where they were like, okay, we gotta, you know, we gotta do something yeah, about these guys. Right. So, wow, wow. You know, one of the things that you, well, there's a couple things you describe. One that you you get called out. I, and I think it was a, involved a shooting with a deputy mm -hmm. in one valley, but right. you're showing up in your motor boots. And, <laughs> yeah. and I was laughing. Yeah. I was like, oh, yes. What the Dude. heck? <laughs> when I got there, I was like, what am I going to do? Yeah. I'm, I'm on a motor. <laughs> with got, big boots. And I, and I had breeches on. Yeah. So I had boots, breeches, <laughs> and, uh, you know, my my top. It, it, it was not tactical at all. No <laughs> rifle, because at that time, motors right, weren't carrying yeah. rifles yet, so I had I no rifle. I was cracking up laughing. I'm yeah. like, yep, I could see Matt doing that. Well, Say, the, let's go. The <laughs> weird thing was, I was, you know, that, that 998 kicks out, and and uh, for uh, non-Arizona guys, most law enforcement should oh, be yeah, right. It is, so, yeah. you know, uh, uh, officer-involved shooting kicks out, so I am flying on my motor. Right. And of course, you can maneuver better than the car, exactly. so I can get there sure. quicker. Well, I'm about to get on the freeway, and I almost wreck. Oh. And and uh, it was because I was going lights and siren. Um, so I start my turn, and as I start my left turn to get on the freeway, lights and siren, and there's a marked unit behind me, lights and siren. So he, they can see him. He's a little more high profile. Right. You're traffic probably getting stops. washed out. Yeah, a little bit. But traffic stops in one lane, the, the what oh, would, no. people would call the fast lane. Oh, no. Traffic stops in the fast lane. Traffic stops in the middle lane. And there's no traffic in the slow lane until I start my turn. And <laughs> as I start my turn. You're like, oh, shit. <laughs> yes. There was an oh, shit moment where I'm because, you know, it's all head and eyes. So I, I look 
into where I'm turning and I'm looking at that as I start my turn. And then I give one more look up to make sure I'm clear. Uh, and as I do that, I see a motorcycle come in the other direction. Oh no! So me and another motorcycle <laughs> are face to face and I'm, I'm partially into my turn and he's going straight on. He sees it at the same time. I see him react. He locks his up. I lock mine up. I had anti-lock. He didn't. (laughs) So I come to an immediate stop. If anybody's dumped on anti-lock hard, you stop like right now. And so I stopped and damn near threw myself forward off my bike and and came back down. And as I did that, his front tire locked up and shifted and tossed him over the top of his bike. So his bike goes down. He comes sliding across and basically hits and rests at the front tire of my motorcycle. (laughs) So I look over and I'm like, holy shit. I said, are you all right, dude? And he's like, yeah, I think so. I'm like, cool, stay right there, don't move. And he's like, okay. And I look at the detective behind me and he's like, I got it, go. (laughs) So he stays with the guy. I take off, ended up being a border patrol guy who had just gotten off shift. So I'm like, oh Oh, my God. Was he hurt at all? He was hurt a little bit. Yeah, he had, he, I, I want to say he broke an arm rash. and some road yeah. rash. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Probably so, a collarbone. That was real common. Yeah. You lock up that front brake. Yeah. And yeah, sounds like bone. a fun thing. Can't wait to go get on a bike. <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately, I made it to the, the call out in my boots and breeches. Yeah. And the craziest part of that whole story was I'm so amped up that I don't even recognize the guy standing there who I, I look to, he's a DPS guy, he's he's on their tactical team, and he's getting his shit out. And I'm like, dude, uh, do you have any pants? <laughs> and he's like, yeah. Because typically SWAT guys carry extra stuff. Right. We're, we come sure. prepared. He's like, yeah, I do. And he's like, what size are you? I said, I'm 34, 32. And he's like, yeah, I, I, that's my size. So he gets them out, he throws them to me. I'm like, sweet. He's piecemealing his uniform yeah, together. Yeah, so I, I am. I'm, I'm putting stuff together. And uh, I asked one of my guys, do you, do you have any boots? And he's like, yeah, man, what size are you? And he, I'm like 10 and a half. And he's like, I got 11. Oh, good. Close That's good enough. enough. Yeah. Close enough. So I put on some tactical Better boots. Than nine and a half. <laughs> got the tactical boots. I got uh, some, some tactical pants on. And then I look at one more of my guys and I'm like, dude, I need your rifle. And he's like, all right. And he takes it off and he hands it to me. Because we had helicopters inbound and we were trying to get on. We were trying to still find our guy that was shot. We didn't know where he was. He was in the desert somewhere. And we were trying to get bad guys. So I piecemeal a uniform together, leave my bike there. Got it all together. Uh, The helo comes in. The first helo that lands, actually, they had found our guy and he's on there. And they offload him for the meds. So as they're offloading him, I'm doing just a quick debrief of him like hey dude what did they look like what were they wearing all that kind of stuff he was all right it was a flesh wound uh kind of caught the fat on the side of his uh, hip there and so uh he gives me a quick debrief and then the next helicopter comes in which was mtso's helicopter and uh we're all hot and and we have we just have all kinds of equipment with us that is not normally allowed on a helicopter (laughs) and so i walk over and you know they wave us let's go let's go and, and i jump on and i'm like Hey, just to let you know, I have this, this, and this. And they're like, yeah, we don't give a shit. Let's just go. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So we launch yeah. and uh, they they end up dropping us off in the desert to go after these guys. Yeah. So it was, that was a, <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a crazy story. <laughs> I can see you out there. Hey, man, I need some pants. Uh, hey. Dude. And the funny <laughs> these, thing these was, boots and britches aren't going to cut this, it. <laughs> this is proof of, of uh, how, how good cops are when we need each other because everybody knew that a cop had been shot. Mm-hmm. Nobody gave a shit what patch you wore. No, no, right. and, and like 
pulling up there. It was just, hey, I need this. Yep, here. Yep, here. Nobody asked questions, nothing. I actually had to, this is how I found out he was my cousin. <laughs> a week later, I go back to the DPS SWAT commander and I'm like, hey, dude, I got one of your guys' pants. I got to get back to him. And he's like, oh, yeah, that was Neil. And I'm like, Neil? And he's like, yeah, Neil. And he explains it to me. I said, he's my cousin. <laughs> he's like, what? And he goes, how did you not know you had his pants? I said, I don't, I don't I didn't even know that was pants. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> See, I'd have rather seen you in the helicopter hanging out with your boots and your motor gear up and your helmet out and everything. Well, if you that read the rest of that story, story you know that that would not have worked out well. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> how has the book been received? It's done really well. I And I think... Uh, as as I guess you know, I can call myself an author now. Yeah. As an author, you just want to know that that uh, people understand and like the story. Sure. Yeah. And uh, the feedback that I've I've received so far has been uh, a very positive, um, and a lot of dude, I couldn't put it down. Which is right. as an author, that's Absolutely. what you want, right? You that's how I felt. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It was it was a great read. I'm. The stories were exciting, right. you know, and I liked, like you said at the very beginning, that you you kind of laid down that historical background of yourself and right. tying everything together so that when you did talk about the stories, everything made sense. Yeah, yep. you did a really good job of that. Cool, but it was fun it. reading, and I'd be laughing, and my wife would be like, "What are you laughing at?" I'm just reading Matt's book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's the the people that knew me. They that it that that's a common theme is right. dude. I laugh during this because they can see me exactly. You know, I, yep. I know exactly. Yeah, I know the face he makes. I know yep. yeah. this is Matt right here. Yeah. <laughs> now I got to get the book and read. It. I really did not. You know, in, in all honesty, you've been a little it's busy. All good. But all it's, good. Uh, yeah. Hey, you, you're fighting a good battle. So. I, I'm all about. I'm all about. A, that's that's my family. The narcotic side of this yeah. thing. I lived it twenty plus years. Um, but yeah, that sounds like one I'm gonna have to read yeah, now. Yep. The, and, uh, the, uh, the, uh, I think just any of the cops that I've talked to enjoy the, the narcotic side of it. Uh -huh. If they have been in that work or are looking to get in that work, uh, there's a little bit of the gang stuff in there. So sure. it's got that gang <clears throat> nexus, uh, for them. And then I think, uh, I tried to put in just a, uh, I, and it, I think it's kind of a hidden message, but, uh. I tried to throw some leadership stuff in there at the Good. beginning when I'm talking about how I came up because I, I just kind of described some of the stuff I went through, some of my thought process, right. sure. that kind of stuff. And and so uh, because, again, I wanted this to be a book where specifically cops, when they read it, they weren't like, man, this is some bullshit. <laughs> and, I, and I also wanted them to, I wanted them to say, oh, this is cool. And the one thing I think we all go for, I just want to be a good cop. Yeah. You know, that's right. what I want to be known for. And so I, I hope that people get that out yeah. of this book. Do you worry, though, that the people that are in are kind of headed into that line of work are going to go, God, that was those were fun days. This isn't much fun these days because they can't yeah. do a lot of the same stuff in most places. Right. No, not really, because uh, I think the job is what you make of it. And, and mm -hmm. like undercover, uh, counter drug, counter gang work, it's. It's all fun mm -hmm. and exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, not all. I mean, there's a lot of paperwork. It's tough stuff, <laughs> yeah, and a lot of family stuff. But uh, um, no, I it, because it's all different generations. And because I, I would say that the the cops of the '80s, right, the drug right. cops of the '80s, sure, they would argue that theirs was the best time to be right. had, and sure. uh, those were the Wild West days. And I would argue that the ours were the best time. So I think each generation has its own thing. And I'll tell right. you, like right now. Uh, something that I never worked. Uh, I, I started to a little bit at the the tail end of my undercover days. These cops that are working drugs and gangs right now, 
technology is their frontier. True. Right. And uh, they are doing stuff with technology and putting cases together with technology True. that is just amazing. So that's going to be their thing. True. And, and the good thing is the cops... The young generation of cops right now, that is their, their thing. thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, what they're into. Uh, yeah. They love it. Yeah, yeah right. that's true. They yeah, grew up true. with it in right. their whole, you know, ever since they've been born, it's yeah, been there. they have a much better <clears> Where you and I, right. we didn't have that luxury exactly. of having all that stuff. Sure. Yeah, I, I, like, my first introduction to social media was uh, MySpace. <laughs> and, like, some of these guys <laughs> won't even know what MySpace that's was. Right. That was our thing like, exactly. when I was working undercover. Until <laughs> the old people took it over from the young people. <laughs> and then they went, then they formed Facebook to yeah. try to get rid of us. And they keep moving yep. and we keep following them. <laughs> For sure. Not getting rid of the old people. That's right. We're here to stay. That's it. So what's, uh, what's next for you uh retirement i think any um, more writing yes i am i have started a little bit uh so the th weird thing about books is they're kind of addicting it's almost like tattoos i have a whole arm of <laughs> tattoos and uh i was told this in the beginning and it was true once you get one you want to keep going because <laughs> Especially uh -oh, when, when when you have meaning. <laughs> not not oh, happening. you could do it. Lower back tattoo, not Susan. Oh, come on now. <laughs> Guys, I got enough needles poked in me for the last 18 weeks. I don't need a little ink added on top of it. <laughs> but I think writing is the same, that uh, once you do it and, and kind of going through the process and on the back end of it, um, now I have an understanding of what I'm getting into and how to do it better the next time. And so uh, my next venture, though, is is not going to be cartel stuff. Uh, it'll probably have some some of these stories, but it's I'm going to focus more on leadership. Uh, good. And I'm going to focus more on because I'm an anomaly in in this world. Um, I was a white kid who grew up in Section Eight housing with a single mom, around gangs, around drugs. And the world would bet against me, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was not supposed to make it out of that realm the way I did. And I did. And um, coming out of that realm, getting into cop work, uh, and as a cop, I spent the majority of my career working my ass off, uh, working a lot of hours, working a lot of details, volunteering for a lot of stuff, mm -hmm. uh, which meant for me, I did not focus on a secondary education. So I, I don't have a degree. Mm -hmm. And so, well, yeah, you do. It's just not from right, an right. academic building. Right. Yeah, yes. yeah. And I, I, uh, I tested for some chief positions, and there was one position in particular that I actually got offered at the same time that the sheriff offered me this job. And uh, in that panel interview, they asked me that because I, I only got through to the final stage because of my training and experience, and because they knew who I was in mm -hmm. my background, and so that got me through because they had a little caveat in there that said equivalent training or experience, mm -hmm. right? Sure. And so, As they should. Uh, right. Every one of them should I, have that. I believe so, too, because <laughs> I've met some chiefs with all kinds of degrees that, that are complete idiots. Yep. And then I've met some that uh, aren't and aren't idiots and don't have Absolutely. higher education. Anyways, for me, um, when I answered their, their question was, all of the other candidates have a degree – how are you going to compete against that? And I said, I'm not competing against that. I have to. Yeah. And uh, they, so they said, well, explain your answer. And I said, well, I'm not competing against those guys because those guys are typically the dudes that do a little bit of work and spend a lot of time on their schooling. Yep. And uh, they're not getting the shifts that I was getting. They're not doing the work that I was doing. 
and I was going to a lot of, of job-related training when mm -hmm. they were going to college courses. Yep. And I said, so essentially, they have a piece of paper that is all based on theory while I was doing the actual <laughs> right. job. And I said, you so your choice, job experience. Right. And, and I told them, your choice as a town and your choice as a panel is do you want somebody that understands theory and may possibly be able to do the job for you? Or do you want somebody who's proven that they can do the job? And go. I just need to understand your dynamics as far as it relates to budget and all that stuff, right? Sure. And so um, that's, that's how I kind of got to where I was at. And, and uh, with this job... Um, what I explained to people, why I'm an anomaly is because not having a degree, I'm currently in charge of about a $50 million budget with about 600 employees. And that's not normal. Like typically right. speaking, chiefs or uh, chief deputies in these positions um, have a bachelor's or a master's. Oh, yeah. And uh, um, I, I don't. And But my my path to success comes from everything I learned on the street as a kid mm -hmm. all the way up to learning the politics of government work and being able to flow in that world mm -hmm. um, while not succumbing to politics, but being able to maneuver uh, because politics surround you in everything, right? Yeah. And, and mm -hmm. you have to be able to, you have to be, be able to understand them. Um, you have to have the social skills to work at different levels. So I can, I can be talking to a street thug one minute and yep. I can be talking to a COO the next minute and sure. I can navigate both those worlds. And so it's all of that stuff that I want to kind of put on paper and uh, be able to relay for those, not necessarily for the people that, um, because I do believe in higher education and, and I think it's important, but I, I don't want people to circumvent that just to follow somebody else's else's path. But I want them to understand that there are multiple paths and you can make your own way. You don't have to follow mm -hmm. the traditional, I got to get a degree to get a higher paying job or to be in charge of something. You don't have to do that shit. You can work your way to the top just by working your ass off. We need to cut that whole section of this podcast to have an <laughs> instant replay on Under the Shield. Yes. Because this has been our theory. You know, I, I made the mistake of getting the master's. Now I want to give it back. Yeah. Um, only to find out that in this lifestyle, it, it has nothing to do with reading a book on psychology right. or getting a master's in counseling. Because, again, that may be the case in the rest of the world. But for first responders, military, this is a lifestyle. You have to have lived this. Right. You cannot begin to understand the lifestyle based on reading getting yeah. getting your master's or Ph.D. Right. It doesn't work. And no. this is why we're having so much failure in the mental health world with mental wellness and the first responders. Mm -hmm. Because there's no relatability in so many situations. Right. And that's been our whole thing at Under the Shield with our stress coaches is they have to have lived this life right. in some capacity. Right. And and I think the important thing is for anybody that's looking to, because we all lead in some capacity. Sure. We lead our families. We lead mm -hmm. in our churches. We lead at schools. We lead in our jobs. Um, and I think if you're leading in all of those, that's even better because you, you're just making yourself a better leader. Sure. But... Uh, I think what what guys and gals coming up in this profession need to understand is a you got to work your ass off. You got to be willing to put in the work. Um, and one thing I see in this profession right now, which is kind of a double edged sword, because I while I agree that we do need to pay more attention to our family life, at the same time this job demands a lot it of does. your family life. And if you are 
looking to be that hard worker and looking to advance your career in the future, you've got to put in the hours. And so you, you've got to have a happy medium where your family, because this is what happened with me. My family had to work around my schedule, and that's mm -hmm. typical of right. all of us in this yeah. career. Absolutely. So Christmas wasn't always on Christmas Day, nope. right? It, it might be Christmas Eve. It might be the day after Christmas, same for Thanksgiving and birthdays and all that stuff. And so you just have to work with your family to make some adjustments, and, and you can still make it work. But you have got to put in the time, and you've got to put in the work, and you've got to get the experience, uh -huh. and you've got to go after the tough assignments because one of the things I see in our industry right now is nobody wants to do anything extra. Right. I just want to do my base job and, oh, yeah, they're testing for SWAT or they're testing for narcs or they're testing for detectives. I'd like to go do that, but then I have to do extra work and I maybe I have to work some days that I don't like. And it's like, dude, you're you're not going to get anywhere right. with that You're attitude. shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. But yeah. I think some of that, too, comes from failure of leadership, oh, yeah. that yeah. there's mm -hmm. a fear if I, if I expose myself in some other capacity mm -hmm. also, I can also get hung out to dry because yep. I watched them do it yeah. <laughs> to Joe and Fred over here. And so there's kind of a, you know, I, I don't know that I'm willing to do that because I'm not sure they're willing to back me up. On well, it. not only that, but they've, uh, I think the last few generations has also watched, um, and, and this is, I think, why we do better. The, the sheriff and I are very loyal people. Yes, and we're loyal to each other and we're loyal to our agency. Yep. And uh, the the last few generations have watched the complete lack of loyalty. Mm -hmm. And so they've watched their parents that have put in 30 years at an organization or company yep. and get cut for no apparent reason sure. uh, other than they're thin in the herd or whatever they're doing. And complete lack of loyalty to that person's investment of mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And so they're gun shy to, why, why am I going to invest heavily into this when they'll just drop me like a exactly. bad habit, you know? So there's a, there's a lot of dynamics, but I think ultimately people have to look internally at, at what do they want to accomplish? And so for me, I, I feel accomplished at the end of this career because I'm coming up on the end. I feel accomplished when I see young cops that are stepping up into leadership to and they're doing it well. Yeah, absolutely. And yep. and uh, I'm doing everything I can to help that there because as, as we talked about, I think one of my, I, I wanted to be a good cop and as I've become more tenured as a cop, I wanted to leave a legacy behind and the legacy being creating better leaders so that when I come back in 5, 10, 20 years and look at my agency, I'll still see remnants yes. of my investment. And the, the heavy investment is in the leaders throughout your ranks yes, and, and teaching them, showing them the way. And if I can get somebody that can take my seat and do better than me. You've done your job. That is it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's a book that I used to give out when I first started under the shield called Leadership Secrets of Attila the Hun. <laughs> and I said his mission may not have been the greatest in the world, but his philosophy was you right. raise people to take your place. Right. That's what's missing. And the sad part, too, is and I and I understand both sides of it. But there are not a lot of people in law enforcement that are coming to the end of their career who want their children to do this job right. because they've watched the changes. And who better equipped to do this job than someone <laughs> who's come up in the lifestyle? They right. understand where they're versus somebody who just came out of college. Well, and I can tell you that's that's me exactly. And I've kind of shifted my perspective on that. And the sheriff had a lot to do with that in some of our discussions. I have a 15-year-old boy mm -hmm 
who wants to be a cop because mm -hmm. he's he's watched dad do it. He's seen the lifestyle. He's been around my friends. And I think a lot of it has to do with the brotherhood, the camaraderie, yes. um, all that stuff. And, and he likes the military side. He's uh, attracted to that as well, right? And initially I was like, oh, no, son, no, no, no. I'll lock you here the rest of your life. <laughs> I, I really don't want you to go down that path. And so my opinion has changed. And, and uh, the sheriff said it best. He said, dude, we've got to stop doing that. If uh -huh. we're asking for good people in this profession – but we're not willing to tell our own family to do it. <laughs> yeah. How are they going to believe us? And I'm like, oh, dude, yeah, that is completely correct. And so uh, uh, like with my son, essentially looking at vocational schools and stuff like that, and and that's what he was, he was like, oh, this vocational school has an LE program. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, let's have an honest discussion. And I said, you know that I hire people, right, for our agency. He's like, yeah. I said, never once, not once, ever, ever. I said, I want you to understand this, never <laughs> have I ever, 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 ever asked them, did they do law enforcement program at a vocational school? Right. It does not matter right. when you get here. When you get to the point that you're going to get hired, they're looking at your worth, work ethic, your background, uh, you know, all that type of stuff. And I said, if you're going to go to a vocational school, please, please, please get a life skill that mm -hmm. will help you outside of law enforcement. Mm -hmm. I said, if you want to go be a cop still, I'm cool with that. I'll Absolutely. back that. And I'll help you any way I can. Go be a cop, but get another life skill because yep. when you're a cop, you're going to have extra time yep. or you're going to want to do outlet. stuff on the exactly. side. Yeah. And yeah. so that's what I'm trying to push him towards. Yeah, learn a life skill. Yeah. Well, and, and one day you do leave is you're right, going to show right. him and you're young still. There's right. still a lot you can do. Yep. You got to prepare for that. But the biggest deficit that we see at Under the Shield teaching in academies all over this country, and we preach this almost every podcast, I think, is the failure to train families about the lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, at Phoenix, we teach, Tom and I are still teaching some at Phoenix right. with the new recruits. And, you know, they're still teaching the archaic principle I've heard for 100 years. Let's <laughs> keep personal and professional separate. Right. We are creating divorces yeah. when we do that. Right. And that, to me, is the hard part. And, you know, when, but when you can get in, one of the smartest things DEA did when Marshall first got hired with them or was in the hiring process was there was a DEA spouse who mm. told me exactly what life was going to look like. Right. And I was all for it. Yep. You know, yeah. uh, this was great. And but we don't do that anymore. We do family day at the academy and we make it look fun and <laughs> yeah, exciting. Hoorah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if we're not educating the other half, you know, I could be Marshall's biggest stressor right. or his biggest stress reliever. Right. And it came from having some kind of knowledge about what was expected from me, what mm -hmm. was expected from the family, what this was going to look like because he doesn't get to go, no, tell your sergeant, you ain't coming out. I don't care if there's a shooting. I'm lying here pregnant with your child. You're going to come home to your house burning. Um, but but we still aren't doing that. Right. And that's the frustrating part for us. Every day, every day I see couples and I go, golly, if they could have gotten in our class, right? we could we could have saved this marriage before it ran off in the ditch. I've yeah. got one today. Yeah. That's the hard part for well, us. Well, I think uh, part of that is, um, and, and again, we're we're doing our best to break through this as an agency and as leaders of our agency is, is having open discussions about our mental well-being and um, all of that stuff, the family stuff. And so I think as we normalize, because it still is not normalized right. to, to have a therapist, to see a therapist, I think on the front end... Uh, what we as agencies need to do is start that couple therapy from day one so that because the wife is going to have frustrations yep. 
that the guys don't understand. One of the best things I ever did, and I didn't do it because I'm I was not smart enough to figure this out. I went back to as a traffic guy, I went back to IPTM in Florida, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you go back to IPTM, um, back then, anyways, this was uh, uh, mid '90s. Um, there you had a little bookstore, and so I'm in the bookstore, and there's a little old lady running the bookstores, and she was just sweet as could be, a nice mm-hmm. Southern lady, and she says, "Son, what are you looking for?" I said, I'm just looking at the books. And she says, are you a police officer? I said, yes, ma'am, I am. I'm out in Arizona. And she says, well, there's a book here that that uh, you should probably get. And uh, she says, you married? I said, yeah, I'm married. I know which book it is, too. And she <laughs> says, uh, well, son, if you'll take this book, this will help you and your wife. And I said, okay. And, and like, like, what is it? And she says, it'll just help her understand you better. I said, Huh, that seems like a good thing. So I buy this book. I love a cop. cop. Yep. And uh, take it back to my wife. And and I said, hey, you know, got this from a little old lady. She said <laughs> it's probably good for you. And uh, my wife read it. She she didn't read it for a while, right? And then she dove into it a few months later. And she's like, oh my god, mm-hmm. like I needed this when you first started. <laughs> and she says there are so many things that I understand now that I didn't understand about you and how you act and you know all that stuff. And as as simple as uh, unbuckling my seatbelt as we would start to arrive at a place. Sure. So I'm getting ready to get out of the car and get to work. Right. And uh, she's like, what are you doing? Like, why do you always take your seatbelt off? And we're not even there yet. And I'm like, well, so I can get out quick if I need to. Like, well, I, why do you need to get out quick? I'm like, well, I really don't. Like in our POV. <laughs> but, but, yeah. but <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so just simple stuff like that. You know, she didn't understand these little yeah. quirks and behavior. Right. And then you can't take it out of you when I would, I'd be on the freeway and I'm, I'm going at good speed and I'm just kind of in and out of traffic. And then I would woo, slow down uh-huh. because I saw that their tags were expired. So I wanted to slow down and get a full read on the plate. And then I'm like, I don't even, what am I doing? Right. I have, I'm not going to run this car. <laughs> exactly. yeah. And she would be like, what are you doing? I don't even have a laptop. Yeah, here. <laughs> and I thought, no, that car's tags are expired. Who cares? <laughs> I care. <laughs> so just stupid stuff like that where sure. she, she just had a better understanding of all the quirks and and weird stuff. And then she understood too, because it talks about it in there, my drive to always get back to work or be at work. Yeah. When sirens go off, you're right. like, shit, are those my guys? Is yeah. it, what's happening without me? Could I could sure. I be there? Yeah. Yeah. It's not about getting away from the family. No. Right. It's about, you know, I believe the majority, at least I'm not sure about this next generation, we'll see, but are called to this. Yeah. And when you're called to this, then you're going to put a lot of energy into it. And again, family-wise, it we'd rather have five good minutes than eight bad hours. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right. if your butt's at home for eight hours miserable and you're all your thing about how, how long, how long before I get Go to work. Yeah, and we'd rather you go to work. <laughs> right. But when people aren't explaining that, mm-hmm. we tend to turn everything that it's our fault. Yeah. You come home frustrated. Don't tell us about what's going on. It's something we've done. Right. And this just... It just spirals out of control and it becomes a real issue. Well, the whole, um, and you don't even know you're doing it. No. As a a cop, you're just, you're doing what you think you're supposed to do. And and trained. And trained to do and what you're you're feeling. Like when I would get home, I'd, boom, straight to the room. I Uh don't want to talk to anybody. I don't Mm -hmm. want questions. I don't, like, I just don't want to have to do anything for just a few minutes. Decompress. Yeah, just sit there. I've made enough decisions. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, just stuff like that because your your spouse 
has not had that all day. No. And they want to do an information download with you. And adult companionship. <laughs> yeah, We've exactly. been with little ones that barely speak English. Yeah, yeah. And now we want to, uh, you know, and being the introvert that I am, yeah. um, you know, Marshall <laughs> used to come home and he'd start and I'd go, time out. And I'd take a chair and sit at the middle of the kitchen floor and I'd hold a flood lamp bulb over my head and I'd go, all right, go ahead. And he'd look at me. I'd go, you're interrogating me. Yeah. Oh, oh, is that what that means? Yeah, that's what that means. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. you don't even know you're doing? No, and that was another, that was a, a big aha moment. My wife and I will have been married uh, 30 years in July. And so she's been with me on this whole crazy you know, ride. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and uh, it was not all, all uh, you know, unicorns and lollipops. No, it's and, not. And so <clears throat> when we, we were separated for probably a six-month period or so and on the verge of divorce. Um, and one of the things that kind of opened my eyes. I mean, it was a kick to the balls really is when she told me your kids are afraid of you. Yeah. And I'm like, what? Why are they afraid? Like I'm, I'm the protector, right? right. Why are they afraid of me? And because you interrogate them mm -hmm. and you lose your shit so easy. Um, and I'm like, you know, no, I don't. I don't. And then when you no start <laughs> really diving into it, you're like, well, yeah, I guess compared to normal people because that's the other thing is we don't have a normal people gauge because right. you're not around normal people yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly you're around all these you're around things. a guy that does the same thing or a girl that does the same yeah. thing acts the same way or yeah. you're dealing with some crazy from the public right right yeah it's it, and really we have the easiest job at under the shield because mm -hmm. it's the same stuff it's right. just different names different faces mm -hmm. which is why it's so effective because, again, it isn't about, well, you know, did your mother breastfeed you long enough and right. that, that kind of stuff. It, no, it's about it's about the whole picture and, and the things we ask y'all to do and they be exposed to that no human should be exposed right. to. Right. right. And I think for us as leaders, uh, and that's, again, one of the things that I've done in this position, the sheriff, his position, and, and our us as a team uh, for the leaders of our agency – has been to try to normalize this as much as possible and talk to our people. Like I, I talked to our group of sergeants uh, at one of their meetings and kind of told them like, hey, man, you, you, you're going to have things. If you guys don't pay attention to it now, um, and, uh, you know, some of these guys I've had personal conversations with where I've, I've told them like, hey, let me tell you about my first heart attack. Uh -huh. And they're like, what? I didn't know you had a heart attack. I didn't. Right. And I was in my room and I said, I would have swore to God that I was having a heart attack. And I said, but when I went to the hospital, they said, no, <laughs> everything checked out. My heart is in great condition. Everything's fine. And uh, the doctor comes in to tell me what actually happened was a panic attack. Yep. And I'm like, I'm not a pussy dude. <laughs> right. And, and so, you know, you have to, you have to talk to your people about that though, because like for me, I think, I think I have a good level of respect as far as the, the cop work I've done and, you know, my, my street cred, right. if you will. Sure. Yeah. And so, if a guy like me can come in and tell them, like, you have got to pay attention to this shit because if not, it shows up whether you want it to or not. Like, I, you know, right. I would much rather not have had a panic attack and went to the hospital. Uh, but that's exactly yeah. what happened. And it was because the cup was overfilled and I hadn't yeah. paid attention to it. Yeah. Well, and, and that'll that's kick the, you in the balls, too. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. And that's yeah. the garbage can theory I wrote 31 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's so simple. But the reality of the matter is... And this is why families have to be in the training, because they're the ones who see the early warning signs yeah. of this. And it ex explains post-traumatic stress. But if you compare, because of your lifestyle, you have one psychological garbage can. Mm -hmm. If you compare that to your garbage at home <laughs> and you don't empty it, what's the first thing you notice? It smells bad. Yeah. Psychological garbage can. Attitude sucks. You're irritable. You're oh, cynical. Yeah. 
you're snapping at your families. They say you're not as much fun as you used to be. Right. Kids are afraid of dad. Yeah. That's post-traumatic stress. Garbage cans full. Mm-hmm. You got to empty the garbage. It's been sitting there so long. The bag's decayed. You pick it up. Bottom falls out. You got a huge mess. Yep. Psychological garbage can, we start to see high blood pressure. Heartburn yep. turns to acid reflux. Got that. We see anxiety. <laughs> Check. Depression. Check. <laughs> we see addiction. Yeah, I'm good on that one. Well, I'm addicted, addicted to, to work. Yeah, <laughs> well, working, working out. Well, and you can be addicted yeah. to exercise. Yeah. And we call that post-traumatic stress injury. Mm-hmm. Well, you can stay there till you get divorced five times, get fired, DUI, whatever it is. Or you can do what we call post-traumatic stress growth, and you grow through your injury by helping someone else. Yep, yep. And that's finding purpose in your pain. Right. And that theory has stuck with cops all over the world, from Canada and Europe, where Grossman and I have talked together, all over the U.S. I have guys 30 years out going, I'm I'm chief now, and I'm telling my people what you taught me 30 years ago. Because they can identify those things. Yeah, And, and that's what I'm trying to do with our people is tell them, like, look, here's the deal. Like panic attack, uh, heart palpitations, I have high blood pressure, I'm pre-diabetic, all of these things. And when you talk to doctors who know what they're talking about, and uh, like for us, heart fit for duty was yes. a big move. Yep. Um, and we started pushing that heavily. Um, when I when I started going there, and it was when one of my SWAT teammates at 48 years old had an actual heart attack mm-hmm. and told me, dude go get your heart checked. And, right. and it scared the shit out of me. So I did. Absolutely. And then when you go get your checkup and you figure out, I, I mean, I knew I had the heart palpitations, couldn't figure out what the hell that was. Mm-hmm. Well, it's all related. So heart yeah. palpitations, high blood pressure, pre-diabetic. And essentially the doctor's like, this is a result of this career. Like mm-hmm. this is what happens to you guys. Right. These are all first responder uh, PTSD and, and not even, it's just a whole career of that shit that piles up and starts to, and you don't understand it when you're young, you think you're invincible and until it manifests itself. And what I try and tell our guys is look, you don't understand there's physiological responses that your body is going to have after. And at times are different. It could be five years for you. Sure. And it took me 25, right? It doesn't matter. It's going to happen at some point. You can't stop it unless you start at the front end and deal with it correctly so that we're normal ish human beings um, and not compartmentalizing all this stuff because all the compartments got full for me. Mm-hmm. There was yeah. no more room to put anything. The garbage <laughs> yeah. can was full. Yeah. And, yeah. and in not talking to families or not talking to somebody, yeah. you're just cramming it in. Oh, yeah. And and that's, that is the bottom line to it. And the sad part is <laughs> one of the downfalls we're seeing to body cams. Mm. is the inability to use sick humor where y'all used to use sick humor (laughs) to keep some things out of the garbage can. Right. Right. Now they can't. So their garbage cans are filling up at three to five. That's I'd never even thought of that. Well, most have it. This is the stuff we focus on. And again, when you can educate people about it, most don't even know they have this garbage can. Families need to know about it. They can then help in emptying that Mm -hmm. or making sure you're doing things to help you empty it. Then we're going to begin to have an impact the the whole mental wellness thing is not about mental illness, but that's right. how we're treating it. Right. It ain't about the schizophrenia and say, y'all have MMP right. item to death. But it's about human beings cramming stuff in that yeah. they shouldn't have to. And that's the big thing is is uh unlike a true mental health problem, this is easily fixed. Yes. Right? And yes. I don't want to say easily because it, it is difficult to work through some of this stuff. But there's a solution, and you just have to to follow the program, yeah. And, and you have the solution, um, where you know true mental health patients they they have something going on that's a chemical imbalance, and, yes. and 
You're not going to fix. Right. Yeah. yeah. This is good people that we've put in <clears throat> difficult situations yeah. and haven't provided the tools and right. education. And it's time that that changed. Oh, yeah. And one of the things we're doing right now is, uh, and I tell you, when I first brought this up to my oh, captains, boy. the uh, captains and lieutenants were like, what? <laughs> um, so the sheriff and I, I was talking to the sheriff. And uh, I have some buddies that are top tier guys in the military or, or retired from some of the top tier teams. And uh, they have been, a lot of them, doing psychedelics. Uh-huh. And so... The microdosing and yep, stuff. Microdosing yeah, microdosing of psychedelics. And they all described how much better they have been after this stuff. And so I started really looking into it and diving into it. And uh, ketamine was the one that I yeah. was really looking at. And ketamine, if you look, read the white papers on it, um, it actually has the... It's, it's one of the drugs that can reconnect some of that disconnect in your brain that happens after all these years of this crap. And so... I told the sheriff, like, hey, what do you think about letting our guys do this? And and he's like, yeah, I'm down, man. Because he's he's an outside-the-box thinker all sure. the time. And mm-hmm. so he's like, let's do it. And I said, well, it's illegal. So And they did. Yeah, so I bet they did. So we, uh, we went to our legal first, and uh, our, we have a great county attorney. And he's like, will it help your guys? And I said, yeah. He's like, I'm in. What do we got to do? And I'm like, cool. All right, so... We started working on that piece, and I went to AZ Post, and I have a great relationship with Matt over there, and he's he is a he's a breath of fresh air for Arizona Post, wow. let me tell you. So I started talking to Matt about it, and his initial reaction was, "Nope, if your guys are using it, we will will have to you know <laughs> take action on it." Yeah. yeah, and so <clears throat> I said, "Well, it's a great retention tool because if." If our guys use it, they can't go anywhere because they'll have to admit to it. <laughs> <laughs> You're up Pinal County forever, son. <laughs> uh, but not not wanting to screw people over, I, I needed to find a, a way out. And so I got with our legal again and our HR. Our HR said, hey, we'll work on policy changes if this is the direction you guys want to head and there's good information on it. And there is. There's sure. good white papers on it. Um, legal started looking at it. And so our next move was going to go to the attorney general's office and request their override of post decision. Um, and before we went through all that work, I got back with Matt and I said, Hey, I want to reapproach this with you. And he said, you're good to go, dude. Wow. Um, he says, I, I thought about my position. He says the old cop in me answered the first time. Right. Uh, I've looked into this a little bit and he says, we're, we're good Sure, uh, under our doctor's care. Right. And, ha- and that's the problem. There are too yeah. many of them out here yeah. just giving ketamine right. with no follow-up, no nothing right. else to it. And that's when people get in trouble. And that's why, uh, like for us, um, what we're doing is, is under the care of a psych, not a regular doctor. We wanted to take it one step further and Have make to. it psychological. Um, so, or a psychiatrist. Um, so, we are on the verge of that now. The problem is that insurance won't accept it, and so mm-hmm. it's cost prohibitive. Expensive. Yeah, and so we're looking internally because we have access to special revenues, i.e. RICO money, and what yeah. better way to spend RICO money than to make our people better? So exactly. now we're looking at um, setting up some uh, some of our cases that we know we have some people with some, some serious trauma and offering it and seeing if, uh, if they want to go through it and then figuring out the way to fund it and get that done. And then we've even had discussions as we get into this program, once we get it off the ground, is when we have, like we just had a uh, one of our, our guys had to shoot and kill somebody a couple of weeks back. And when we have an incident like that, immediately getting them in to get that done at the front end and let them get that that 
dump uh-huh. right. um, because it's it's an unconscious dump, right, that they do, sure. which then makes your job easier to work through repairing anything that's left over. Sure. Um, so <clears throat> that's some of the stuff we're doing that uh, in the law enforcement world, when you talk about it, they're kind of like, <laughs> what? What? <laughs> that's good. But, that's but good. you know what? That's, that's what we need. We change. need leaders like that that are willing to look outside right. the box. Absolutely. You know? yeah. Absolutely. Because the things that we've done for the last 50 years – yeah, plus don't work. it's not working. Right, exactly. And, you know, we've we've brought this three tiered approach: peer support, stress coaches, and the licensed world. Mm-hmm. We can't just do peer and licensed anymore. It's not working. Right. And you got to bring in other resources that are safe. Again, with us, everything's anonymous. And uh, you know, as we wrap things up here too, you know, this we'd like to have you back. Yeah, we hope absolutely. you'll come back. We yeah. want to. We also want to get the sheriff back because yep. he's pretty easy on my eyes. And for all the ladies <laughs> that are listening, yeah. they know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter what he he's says. well liked by the ladies. <laughs> yes, yep. he and is. Any any guy that can sell his cowboy hat for several thousand dollars on an auction, mm-hmm. that's, I know that's dude. crazy. I know. Isn't I get, it? He's I, the I, only I, guy <laughs> I've ever hung out with that gets catcalled <laughs> on the street by women. It was probably me. <laughs> <laughs> it's Susan <laughs> following him around. Yeah, yeah, the Phoenix guys at the academy were concerned when he was coming to my house to do the podcast. He said. That poor man may never leave. <laughs> I'm a little old for Mark, but that's okay. I can still appreciate a nice looking man. And, uh, but, uh, you know, we appreciate you taking your time out yeah, to come yeah. talk about your career and Absolutely. the things you've seen in your book. And again, now I'm going to have to read that book. Well, I hope I, you enjoy it. I, I have no doubt that I will. I'll call you and let you know. Um, but as we wrap things up here at Under the Shield, we just want to thank all of our first responders, military that are out there listening and the families. Uh, we recognize the sacrifices that are made, and we want you to know that's what we're here for. You can call us 24-7. We are not, I need to clarify this because I hear it every week, we are not a clearinghouse of, <laughs> of resources. We are the resource. Do we go up to another level if we need to, which is very rare. Um, but you can call us 24-7 at 855-889-2348 if you hit extension 1 We will not have your phone number, but you will get a stress coach. Uh, Do not hang up. It may ring for a little while because it's rolling to the next stress coach, um, but stay on that line. And if we get disconnected, you'll have to call us back because, again, everything is anonymous here. You can call and be your sheriff. You can be your chief. You can be Bugs Bunny. It doesn't matter (laughs) because that's not what's important. Um, If you want to reach me, best way to reach me is my cell number, 334 324-3570. Tom? And my phone number is 480-861-6574. And there is nothing we don't deal with. This is a lifestyle. Families, call us. Kids, you can call us. We have people specialize in law enforcement, kids and fire and all the military and everything. Um, And so we just want to make sure that you know you can call all of us. Uh, There is no one that we won't deal with, parents, whoever. So reach out to us. And make sure that you are talking to someone. That's the hardest part is just asking for help. But we promise you, you will get the help here. So stay safe out there. God bless you. God bless your families in this great nation that we live in. And we hope you'll come back and hear us again at Under the Shield Presents Fight in Progress.